destination. Eat, drink. A pie made with pigeon, Moroccan spices, and the famous souk mama. I'm Brent Peterson. Join me along with Moroccan food tour guide Amanda Mutaki as we take a culinary adventure to Marrakesh, Morocco on the Destination Eat Drink podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Bike Goes On. This is Brian Casey with Sondra Bernstein. We've got uh, Dave Errett, he, who is, uh, we actually have a bacteria farmer in the house today. Sondra. Is that what you call yourself? Um, yeah, on a good day, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I've known Dave for, God, at least 15 years, I would say. When we opened the fig pantry, I don't remember what, oh, 06 maybe? Oh six, oh five. Um, we had the pickles in. It was absolutely one of the the items that we opened with. Um, they are these pickles are usually in my fridge, though I'm happy to know that I about the new process of how I should eat them because I generally just eat the whole thing. And but Dave can explain that. But we're really, really happy. Shout out to Carrie Brown from Jimtown Store. Yeah, for, hi, Carrie. Hi, Carrie, for recommending Dave to come on, even though he was already on our list. And um, I think this is the real Pickle Man, Sonoma Pickle Man. Yeah. And beyond. And beyond. And beyond. And beyond. And beyond. So how did you i guess we should just start at the very beginning oh we, i'm sorry we also have ellen and john um visiting from boston ellen who is my childhood friend Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> and so we may have some additional sound sound bites in here niners niners <laughs> niners <laughs> screw tom brady <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> oh my god. But anyway, um so anyway, so let's where did how did pickles start? I mean, you didn't were you born into pickles? Yeah, kind of. I my uh father who uh, had uh come from New York and actually from the Ukraine before that, uh had uh knew of of the barrel fermented half sour kosher pickle, something that you really just don't see around in the West very much. And this this whole story actually begins uh, in the late 50s when I went over to uh, Tommy's joint, you know, there on Van Ness yep. and uh, Geary. Where is that? On Van Ness and Gary, Van Ness, Van Ness, Van Ness and Gary. It oh, it's Thomas? Tommy's joint. A lot of cab and, drivers. Oh, and it's it, it's it was a place back then that was loaded with uh, what I, I you could call it memorabilia, but it was more or less like everything you could ever imagine. When you just walked in, the walls were blanketed with stuff, and it it was kind of a touristy place. And you know, I wouldn't argue that it was the you know most sanitary place you could eat but <laughs> the one thing about it that made it made it really distinct was that when you went down there it had a kind of a cafeteria line there and when you went down that line at the end there was this barrel of pickles and you could have as many as you wanted and as a little kid and loving pickles uh, just generally 
I would, you know, get a roast beef sandwich and about four pounds of pickles and eat it all together. Uh, it turns out those pickles were the only example of the barrel fermented half sour that I was ever able to find in the Bay Area. And uh, years and years went by and my uh, just had, I don't know why, uh, some sort of obsession for those pickles. And by and by, learned how to make them from a little Russian cookbook. Oh. And and uh, then as a lifelong resident of Marin and Sonoma, like many people, I have a vegetable garden every year. And, you know, I would drag in my cucumbers and make pickles. And the thing about a half sour uh, uh, kosher, it, it is fermented. It has no vinegar. Um, it's, you know, they call it salt cured but it's really cured by the bacteria that uh, do the fermentation and uh, develops this very distinct and wonderful flavor of lactic acid no acetic acid very mild and you know really I think of it as the king of pickles Mm -hmm. Um, so I used to make these things and meanwhile went off into the tech world and did 30 years or so of uh technology development telecommunication stuff um and at some point in time after the dot-com bust and after i'd been in there for a long time and done pretty much everything i felt like i wanted to do i thought i would retire and and then uh as we all know idle hands are the devil's (laughs) workshop so pretty soon i'm thinking what what could i do (laughs) what could i do that hasn't been done and i thought you know i'd like to go into the food business somehow and I don't know this or that I'm kind of a foodie and uh and then it dawned on me you know I could make those pickles uh I've been giving them away to my neighbors and everybody said you know oh yeah those are great you you should sell those and so this is really the result of a hobby gone wild um so I started making these kosher pickles and uh with the help of uh, local local grocers in particular uh, 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 the Fiesta the folks over at uh, Fiesta Market uh, Ken Silvera and uh, his buyer over there Bert um, and uh, uh, were very helpful and I got a container of pickles on the shelf uh, the first email that I ever received in praise of the pickles was on the day after I put the first ones on the shelf over at the Fiesta Market. And some guy wrote me and said, oh, my God, you know, these pickles, these East Coast style pickles, I've been looking for them. Can't find them and blah, blah, blah. So at that point, I was operating out of a friend's uh, a caterer's uh, kitchen. And uh, we grew kind of quickly and sort of began to step on each other's toes there. So I moved it over to my garage for a little while and then rented a warehouse in uh, Healdsburg where I live um, and uh, started, you know, recrafted this kind of crummy warehouse into a food facility, uh, which as you, as you would know, is a challenging thing to do. And, um, uh, hired started you know i hired a couple of people to come help me and um next thing you know i the grocer said to me where's your sauerkraut (laughs) and i of course said well it's uh at home i'll go get it (laughs) (laughs) so i went into the sour i started making sauerkraut because they offered me space to show off our stuff 
we did these bread and butter pickles and mm. boy you know one thing and another and then i went over and, and i went to whole foods and asked them you know how do you put a product in here mm-hmm. they said oh you got to go to the corporate office so i called up the corporate office they said well drop it off and i thought oh boy here here comes a brush back and i went over there in uh, emeryville i dropped off these pickles and uh, I didn't get to the San Rafael Richmond Bridge. I got a phone call and they uh-huh. said, we want to bring your line in to Whole Foods, oh, nice. which I thought at the time was that's amazing, pretty groovy. And uh, so we kept on going. And then I picked up a distributor and then a broker and then another couple of distributors. And then I, I was driving them around to your place. You know, you were my, I think, sixth customer or something Aww. of that sort. So... That was very. I'm very grateful for the exposure that we got, and uh, uh, pretty soon all the grocers here in the North Bay were taking them. And then I handed it over to Columbus Distributing, and they were bought by Tony's Fine Foods, who in turn was bought by UNFI. And meanwhile, I hired a broker, and then we got into Whole Foods in Southern California and down in the Southwest, and then we got, I don't know, it, things started to roll, and today. We have uh, 12,000 uh, 12, uh, square feet of production space and uh, 50, we have 50 employees and we're located wow. in Healdsburg and um, creating good manufacturing jobs, as they say here. And uh, we've expanded our line. We have 10 products now. We're in about 3,000 stores and we're available nationally um, through uh, stores like Trader Joe's and out on the East Coast at Giant uh, Martin in the Midwest, Lunds and Byerly's and Schnooks and all over the West Coast. So um, there you have it. And that is amazing. Mazel tov. I mean, seriously. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, it definitely an East Coast flavor. But that is so recognizable. You taste that pickle. And I think there are a handful of foods that bring you back to certain memories. And that, you know, I can, I I eat your pickles and I think about being at Jaime's and Murray's in Philadelphia, the deli. And it brings me thinking about my family and just all sorts of things. And um, it's kind of cool because now, there's such a health related mm-hmm. so i mean not that you needed a resurgence on popularity because you know you're still new but like now it is even more helpful that um you know when did they figure out this was so healthy for our bodies well you know it, it, here's a piece of uh uh good luck uh because you know luck, good luck is the handmaiden of hard work and mm-hmm. there i was working hard, making pickles, and they fermented. I wasn't exactly, uh, keep in mind that I began this as an electronics engineer, not as a microbiologist. That was 15 years ago. And then as I began to study why these things fail sometimes when we ferment them, because mm-hmm. anything you ferment has a risk of failure, and they they do, uh, studying that and then studying you know what the actual microbiology was and then somewhere along the way back in about 2006 or 7 somebody said oh yeah that's probiotic and i thought mm-hmm. probiotic what what that sounds encouraging what what does that mean <laughs> and what it really uh, addressed that i was completely unaware of 
but have become very uh, aware of and uh, being sort of a science nerd have gotten into what it is about these bacteria that how they interwork with with humans um, what I came to find was that yes uh, the, the bacteria that ferment these things and primarily there's one lactobacillus plantarum which if you look that up or google it you'll see is don't even know how to spell that one <laughs> one of the uh, one of the bacteria that seems to be most interesting to the scientific community because of its interrelationship to the human uh, biome and as people have gotten better and better electronic tools so they can study things with much higher degrees of resolution than they ever were before, all of a sudden we, be, we become able to look at the exact interrelationship of these bacteria that normally flow in, you know, we were used to for thousands of years of eating raw vegetables and things that we would say today were not clean but uh, were not uh, risky to us. They were uh, loaded with bacteria. And it turns out that our bodies, while we define ourselves as all the cells that contain my DNA, that's me, actually, we are a system of uh, activity. And if we didn't have the other players there, in particular the gut bacteria, um, many of our functions would not work uh, in, that relate to digestion and to uh, our immu uh, immunological system because the bacteria do a number of things. They break down our foods. They um, help train, actually train, our uh, immune system, which is a large, it's a large feedback system. And if you think about it, um, when if you if you have uh, a system a feedback system you have to calibrate that system somehow uh, bacteria interwork with the gut to do that friendly bacteria mm -hmm. interwork with the gut to to do that and um, and and help the immune system stay on track now when the immune system goes off track we get things like celiac disease or other things and when you mm -hmm. look there's sort of a science has not demonstrated this point, but I'm here to tell you. I think <laughs> I think you'll see this in the not too distant future. That right after World War II, we sterilized the entire food supply, mm -hmm. and the reason we did that was very sound. We needed to send food all over the world. A great deal of the foods, uh, the world's ability to produce food, had been destroyed during the war, and we in America were relatively untouched and able to supply the world with food, which we did. Once we did that, and once we had that whole infrastructure in place, it became really apparent what an economic advantage it was to have a tomato that you grew two years ago in a can and usable, you know, two years later. Uh, smoothed out economic cycles, reduced the, reduced the dependence on crop success or failure of a, of a given year. And the entire food supply when I grew up was sterilized and and we had a new thing around uh that was a result of penicillin which came on the scene in the 40s and um it was called germs and mm -hmm. germs are these little invisible things mm -hmm. that are bad 
and we have antibiotics which are good, and if you take an antibiotic, it will kill the bad thing, and the bad thing is called a germ. It means anti-life. Anti-life, right. antibiotic, yeah. Right. So, uh, so flush with all of this success, we sterilized the food supply, used antibiotics to further reduce our bacterial count, and the next thing you know, society is plagued with uh, 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 autoimmune diseases of, vari- right. of various right. sorts. A lot of them. A lot of them. And so the, the body of science that's out there right now uh, that uh, uh, looks at the relationship between bacteria and humans has not definitively determined that, well, you know, if you don't eat bacteria that you will ultimately have a higher risk of uh, autoimmune but the connections that they are drawing in the web that, you know, science is a long and deliberate process of studying something very small, coming to definitive conclusions so that you can ask the next question uh, that derives from that. And we are uh, uh, at a point right now where enough of those fibers have been drawn that a good scientist will say, well, we haven't reached that conclusion yet. But a casual observer looking at this would see these things sort of converging on, oh, yeah, maybe that wasn't a good idea that we sterilized everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Neither is it a good idea that we, you know, drink sewer water. I mean, uh, I traveled a lot south of the border back in the 60s and 70s, and, man, I lost a lot of weight. Um, <laughs> I, and so I can tell you that sanitation, you know, there is legitimacy mm-hmm. in the idea of sanitation and what have you, and I'm certainly not saying you should, you know, those right. are the bad bugs. Will, willy-nilly. Right. However, cultured foods of all sorts, whether it's salami or, or yogurt or pickles or any of the myriad things that you can think of that rely on, in particular, bacteria, and to some extent yeast, but not so much yeast, mainly bacteria, uh, you know, really provide a, uh, a good source of steady biological input that reinforces your body's uh, immune system, your digestion, and other things that are, I think of it as more like a hot air balloon. You know, it's not like an antibiotic. That's more like a car. You, you hit the gas, you go. You take the antibiotic, kills mm-hmm. everything, you're done. Mm-hmm. Um, this sort of thing is more like, you know, over time, if you want to have a healthy and resilient life, it's a good idea to ingest uh, fermented foods because they are an excellent source of bacteria known to be friendly and oh by the way one other thing about these bacteria that I have come to find is I've had to defend our uh, processes to our various health inspectors as why they ask me why is it safe what you do and um, there's a, a great body of scientific work that shows that fermentation is deadly to most uh, common pathogens and of the big four E. coli, salmonella, uh, listeria and botulism uh, a fer- uh, fermented pickles are deadly to those so uh, they uh, did they take that info from you well Maybe. they actually I get it from the agricultural research center service ARS over in uh, North Carolina State University where there's a group there that was set up specifically to support the pickling industry mm. And so they've done a tremendous amount of scientific work on uh, the effect of fermented and acidified foods 
over time on pathogens. And so, because I'm not smart enough to do this work myself, and when an inspector says to me, well, why, on what basis do you claim that this process is safe, then we bring out these scientific papers that show uh, very definitively how uh, fermentation processes kill uh, you know, bacteria. But really, if you, th if you extrapolate that just a little bit, um, these are not antibiotic uh, per se and what we're used to, which when you think right. antibiotic, you know, you think of one of those Vietnam movies where the jet comes in, drops some napalm, napalm. and the whole thing blows right. up, you know, at, versus today where somebody in Arizona pushes a button and some spot over in the, unfortunately over in the Middle East blows up, much more targeted sort of a thing. And that, I think, well, that's a little bit of a grim metaphor, but... Uh, the uh, <laughs> the idea being that bacteria are very territorial. They're very selective. They fight each other. They do things to each other. That I mean, they squirt they squirt chlorine on each other. Wow. They they produce uh, uh, hydrogen peroxide. They you know they do they do a lot of nasty things to each other. But they're doing it to defend their you know. Uh, their right to exist, right? Their um, habitat, and and they protect their habitat uh, very very uh, effectively, and then comes the fact that they create lactic acid, which is uh, lactic acid. When you look at lactic compared to acetic acid, which is vinegar, and I I don't really have anything bad to say about vinegar because we have a couple of pickle products we use it with, and it's fine. A mm -hmm. little bit of a shortcut, mm. but lactic acid is much softer on your tongue. And, you know, we all like lactic acid. Right, and creamy. You, when you eat salami and when you mm -hmm. eat... Or uh, wine. Or right, wines. Or wine. You know, any, any of these... Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, any of these things that sit so nicely on our tongue uh, that are acetic usually and are naturally created are usually lactic acid. Uh, acetic acid finds its way in, in very minor quantities in ferments, but um, where you use pure... Acetic acid. You got to be careful because acetic acid uh, disassociates hydrogen ions more freely, and that, that makes it seem sharper on your tongue. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> based on I'm all flying of my nerve so flying here. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, can we go back for a second yeah. and talk about the difference between what you're doing and what someone like Vlasic Pickles is doing? Well, I'll give you a, a, a kind of a humorous story, really. Uh, sometime back, an investor uh, approached me and said that he had an affiliation with uh, one of America's largest uh, pickling companies. And would I be interested in engaging in a discussion with them about the potential of them co-packing our product, which seemed reasonable at the time, uh, you know, as a vehicle of expansion. So he got me together with one of their guys and when we were talking uh we we acknowledged that we each made pickles and this was a very conventional large pickle manufacturer like a vlasic uh, it wasn't vlasic but like like vlasic and you know mainly heat processed and you know highly chemically infused and colored and you know you find these in your mcdonald's hamburger and sort of mm -hmm. thing and uh when we were talking we we really 
talked past each other for a little while. And then we realized we don't know, we don't really understand. Neither of us understands what the other guy is doing. (laughs) They're making pickles. I'm making pickles. But the processes and the methods we're using are so different. There wasn't a single step in my process that they had in their process except washing the cucumbers when they came in. So we both washed cucumbers. After that, it went into a completely different, completely different mode. So, so do you? So these are. Um, are you using the a Kirby cucumber or a specific? Well, Kirby is a term uh, that I think is probably as generic as pickling cucumber. Okay. Kirby cucumber. So pickling cucumber. In, on the East Coast, uh, you find that term used very commonly are you mm-hmm. uh you know you use a kirby cucumber uh here in the west when you talk to people who are gardening they'll tell mm-hmm. you i'm using uh, that's a pickling, pickling cu- cucumber it means cucumber. more or less the same thing mm-hmm. there are about 200 at any given point in time there are about 250 cultivars of cucumbers wow. in production around the world and the the uh, uh differentiation between them uh, really starts at the end, which is what kind of a pickle do you want to make? And if you're making a pickle for a McDonald's hamburger, your ambition is much different than if you're going to make a pickle for my koshers here, which are we really showcase the fruit. Mm-hmm. We try to we try to uh, show off what the farmer has done, right. and it makes quite a bit of difference. How these cucumbers are grown, some of them are grown vertically and they're hand-picked. Some of them are grown flat on the ground and they use tomato harvesters to destructively, they, they go out to the field. They don't just you know pick the field over and over again. They go out and they destructively pick the field mm-hmm. and you need a more durable skin on the cucumber to survive that kind of manhandling versus the hand-pick with the thinner skins and... Uh, what I would argue is a more attractive fruit. Um, so each of these cultivars has been designed for one thing or another. And then there's the problem of downy mildew every five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the cultivars get flipped over because fungus, which I've grown to appreciate. Uh, the relative of bacteria. Uh, well, it, it's, it's uh, the grown-up version of a single cell because <laughs> bacteria don't have any organelles. They're mm-hmm. eukaryotic and uh the the uh, or eukaryotic and the uh uh yeast are are eukaryotic they have organelles you can actually through my microscope you can actually look in to see a yeast cell and you can see all of its little mm-hmm. organs wow. and stuff and they all got little flagella mm-hmm. and stuff and um <laughs> you know, it, it's it's the a, only word i recognized in the whole conversation it's, it's a crazy <laughs> no it's, it's crazy when you look at what's in a drop of this brine here um anyway uh well and dave likes to give his vegan friends a little jab for that too right of, with if you look through the microscope it looks i mean they're, they're, when you're eating one of these pickles, you say you're killing so a lot of. So I have uh, a good friend. I have a good friend who is a, a vegan, or a, she's not really vegan. Uh, uh, she's mainly vegetarian. She'll eat fish, but no meat. Pescatarian. And uh, a what? A pescatarian. Yes, mm-hmm. pescatarian. And uh, uh, and I I appreciate that. I mean, I think we should all eat lower on the food mm-hmm. chain. I happen to like meat, unfortunately. Oh, I me guess too. it's okay, but. I try to keep myself as low on the food chain as I can. Well, since, you know, 
12 years ago, I bought a microscope and it changed my life because I looked at a drop of this <laughs> and I realized there's more life in a drop of this than there are humans on this planet. Yep. Wow. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. Living life? L- living and, and swimming and flagellum. swimming around and, and, and doing things like swimming halfway across the slide and then turning right. So it doesn't fall off the edge of the flat well, earth. Well, no, it, it's, you know, just a simple, I don't know why it turned right, but it turned, but it, it, it turned right. It, turned it right. actually had a It said, um, no, nah, I'm not going that way anymore. I'm going did this it, way. Right. A bacteria did right. that. Little bag of chemicals. Mm. No organs, nothing. Just a little bag. And it and it turned right. And I you thought, like Man. sci-fi, don't you? I well, I do. But also, as an engineer, if I had built something the size of a bacteria, and I said, "Hey, mm-hmm. I got something cool I want to show you," I built this thing, mm-hmm. and it's the size of a bacteria, so teeny, teeny, tiny, and it can make decisions about where to go. Huh. I hope you'd be impressed because I know I sure would. Right. right. So I just thought, "Wow, that is far out." That thing <laughs> swam across there and <laughs> turned right. Um, who knows why? Well, they're flat earthers there on their slides. Yeah. So anyway, when you eat, uh, uh, when you eat anything that is fermented, uh, especially especially vegetable ferments, which ha- happen to have very very intense uh, uh, biota or the number of bacteria concentrated into a small area, uh, you are really uh, eating a lot of. Uh, I don't want to say sentient life as we would understand in sentience, but you know, uh, it turned right. Right, <laughs> you know, made a decision. It, it made that much of a decision. So, anyway, uh, and there, it, 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 as it happens, uh, they're good for you, and um, you know, half of all bacteria die every day, um, and many of them are killed by uh, other bacteria. They're constantly at war. Uh, so do vegans think that those are alive? I mean, do they, well, <laughs> is that what the thing is? Is that they won't eat a pickle? As, wow. a, as, because... a, as a vendor of this sort of thing, um, I uh, really have stayed out of that discussion. <laughs> <laughs> probably probably a I good people, idea. Well, people yeah. have to make their own decisions. Exactly. And I respect uh, uh, people's decisions. Um, you know, I'm a huge pork fan. I was in the San Francisco airport the other day, and there was this pig. I get some celebrity pig. A and, live pig. Yeah, and this gal had her on display on on the inside of the security. She'd gone through security, and the pig's got you know fingernails were done, and had a garland of roses, and was playing a piano. And and the gal was feeding feeding her. You know, she would play a little piece on the piano, and the gal would give her a treat. And people seemed to know who that pig was. Uh, I guess she'd been in the movies or something. She's probably on Instagram. She probably has a million trillion followers. So I get it that the pig is a lot different than bacteria. And uh, I don't know that I'd want to eat that pig, but I do love salami. Yeah, I do too. (laughs) I have to tell you. So are are the Cucumber. So, do you know all the farms right now where you're getting the cucumber? So you do. So you have people that you've been working with for years. Well, we have only recently evolved into the million plus pounds of cucumbers per year, and and you really need to sort of get 
beyond the million pound mark before people notice who you are. Oh. Just to give you an idea, in the peak of the season over in Stockton, there's a pickle company, Kruger, Kruger Pickles, and they're, they're the 800-pound gorilla here in California. You may not see their uh, brands around because they're not intensively retail. There's more food service, but they really own the whole food service thing. They process a million pounds a day. Wow. So uh, I process a million pounds in a year. I'm actually, we're, we're now processing two million pounds. And to your uh, question about do we know the farmers, not really in the past. I mean, there were a few we did, and uh, we didn't have the ability to consume enough to be able to be meaningful to their economics. Mm -hmm. And so the farms that we did deal with were sort of doing us a favor. Um, and we were buying off the spot market uh, because we were buying more than like a local producer around here in Good Sonoma deal. County would produce uh, and not enough to be of interest to these big farms. Well, now we are of interest to bigger farms and in the last, I don't know, 18 months, mm -hmm. two years, have uh, really gotten to know our farms better, have narrowed the number of farms down that we deal with. We now work uh, with uh, probably fewer than six farms, and we are able to discuss with them the cultivars that they're planting, their farm practices, and uh, if I could just say, have a pitch for farmers, you know, there's sort of a uh, uh, image of farmers that I think comes out of our obsession with soybeans and corn. Um, when you get to these farmers that are, you know, vegetable farmers and what have you, uh, you know, you're dealing with some pretty salt-of-the-earth people who've been doing this on their land forever. And while I myself would, you know, my environmentally sensitive, yes, I am. Do I make choices based on my perception of environmental sensitivity? Yes, I do. Uh, you know, and I, I truly uh, view the world as a massive and highly complex system which everything we do, including farming, you know, challenges. But the folks that grow these things are, are uh, really sensitive to their land and the sustainability of their land. And when we start preaching to them about sustainability, I've learned <laughs> to avoid <laughs> these looks of incredulity uh, to, to go light on that and just listen to what they have to say. And they'll tell you all about how they're fifth generation on this land and it means everything to them to be able to right. grow and what have you so we've been able to you know select farmers who routinely produce superior cucumbers and whose farm practices we believe are uh, most importantly sustainable mm -hmm. and not and, and not harmful over the long mm -hmm. term so i noticed that you have the kosher certification on the pickles can you talk about the that process well, <laughs> the, the rabbi shows Come, up at the back door he, with yeah. a bag. We put some money in it. He goes uh, away and nobody yeah. gets hurt. I know. Um, Pretty much. And, uh, you know, I... Same in the wine business. Well, yeah, Kosher Dan There's is no actually who... Uh, who, who <laughs> no, that's not we, we adhere... To, and and, and I, I want to be respectful to Kosherik law. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something that I personally practice. But uh, being half Jewish and having, you know, a cultural influence on one side, I understand 
what the meaning is because it's more about meaning right. really uh, it used to have some actually beneficial health practices but i think today it's it's about the meaning and it's about it's important tradition tradition and, and history and those things are important and and to some people not at all and to others extremely mm-hmm. so uh we wanted our products to reach out and we uh are under ksa uh, kosher supervision and really what this amounts to is when we went into the process, we had to have our ingredients uh, reviewed by the uh, uh, a group of rabbis who... And the wanted, equipment, right? Wanted to make sure. Check and then the, the equipment, our the sanitation plant. practices mm-hmm. and various other things. And one of the things about being a fermenter that I didn't understand when we started, but I sure do now, um, you talk about sanitation. We, if we don't have immaculate sanitation then our stuff starts to fail when it ferments because it opens the door to too many other other things things. and as we learned this many years ago uh, we fit right into the rabbinical idea of sanitation because Uh we really sanitize and sanitize and sanitize and sanitize and yes they look at our equipment what's been on the equipment you know so they come into contact with meat of any sort of course Mm -hmm not but those are some of the con- you know right. the kinds of concerns why is there an association with kosher and pickles when did that start well okay so so my half of my peeps came out of the ukraine during the uh period of pogroms that uh where Back then, the Ukraine was sort of considered Russia, and uh, there was quite a, a, there was quite in the area around Kiev and south uh, and and to the west, there was a huge population, largest population of uh, Jews outside of the Middle East, and um, so uh, as was the want of Europe in the nineteenth. And 20th centuries, uh, pogroms uh, were just uprisings of the locals to displace Jews who were in the area. And there was, I mean, there were massacres that uh, are equivalent to the, aggr- the in, in their aggregate to World War II. And a huge population of Jews got up and left the Ukraine and areas in Eastern Europe the late 1800s and migrated to America through New York where many settled bringing culinary traditions and so this the, the the name kosher pickle is more an anecdotal association with the pickle and so it just is one of those things that if you go to somebody in New York and you sat on a kosher half sour they know exactly what you're talking about why kosher kosher is a set of laws dietary laws or why would it get that well it was just a easy way to describe the thing and then we end up with kosher now just to carry that on why kosher well because there's a company or a, a, an organization called the picker pickle packers international <laughs> and they Say are that 10 times fast absolutely uh well it's it's uh, uh, uh industry association that you know protects the legitimate interests of the pickle industry 
and they lobby and one of the things that they you know they knew that the kosher pickle was a very popular pickle and wanted to co-opt the name so today they've lobbied sufficiently and if you want to call a pickle kosher all you have to do is put garlic in it mm. that's oh, the sole requirement for a kosher pickle and this is why the, to me there is no kosher pickle but this and i'm holding in my hand these barrel fermented uh, uh kosher pickles which are the real deal the 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 reinstantiation of these things made with vinegar so you don't have to ferment there's no risk they last longer you can infuse them with uh, chemical preservatives and whatever and you know off they go for forever if you just drop some garlic in there then you get to say kosher pickle and i think people sort of generally have this association of a kosher pickle i think today most people would think well you mean a clausen pickle Mm. and that's sort of an example of the garlic and cucumber making a kosher pickle but really having very little to do in in terms of its process with making a barrel fermented uh, a true barrel fermented Mm -hmm. kosher so Ellen, did you have a question? I did. I was thinking, have you found it difficult to keep your process the same from when you started and we're only doing a little bit to now over a million? Yeah. How do you keep doing it the same way? By doing it the same way. So there's been no change. <laughs> there's no change I, I know that sounds uh, a little flip. Just curious. But but really, what we what we are doing here is very much like what happened with Wonder Bread and baguettes. When I was a kid, you went to the store and the shelves were lined with Wonder Bread. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were around the Bay Area here a few Bordenavis down in San Rafael and a few others that actually made beautiful European-style breads. But as time passed in the 70s and 80s, European-style breads became much more resurgent. Um, I think that Wonder Bread, while they still make Wonder Bread or, you know, the equivalents of Wonder Bread, today I think most people expect if they go to a nice restaurant that they're going to have some what we what I would just loosely call European-style breads, mm-hmm. which are more artisanal, you know, are, are in many cases beautifully crafted, wonderful flavors and things that you would never get from a loaf of uh, uh, Wonder Bread. And um, this is sort of the, when we talk about how do we make these things, if I can go back to that. I started off by making them. These are barrel fermented, so I got a barrel. Like a big wine barrel or a different... Well, I th- that thought crossed my mind that a wine barrel might be a good thing, but then wine barrels are too biologically active. Right. And right. I needed something that was going to be neutral, so I did got a different kind of wine barrel. I got a, I got a, a 100 liter uh, stainless steel wine fermentation oh. tank and that's how I started and then we came to realize that there was a whole family of uh, uh, plastic barrels that are made uh, and commonly used in the food industry out of food grade the big blue uh, ones the uh, brute you know the, the guys who make your garbage cans right. basically also make these uh, barrels which are used to move around in large food processing facilities they're used to move large quantities of food mm-hmm. around 
Um, and we uh, started using those and found out that they were thermally good. They, uh, everything about them was good. And so today, instead of having one bigger tank to make more pickles, I, I have where I started with, you know, one or two barrels. Today I have, I don't even know how many barrels we have, but we have hundreds and hundreds. And we do exactly the same thing that we did when on the first pickle that we ever made. Um, I doubt you'll see a transition there. Uh, I think we will stay with small batch, uh, barrel fermented uh, uh, process for a, a variety of reasons, but not the least of which is that the quality of results that you can get from that, because you can specifically control that small tank, um, where a big tank, if I could just sub sub tend onto this, that a big tank is like having a, a city with lots of little neighborhoods in it where fermentation is moving at a different speed, different things are happening. And a smaller barrel, you get a much more uniform result. So that's what we do. And everything that we do, like the baguette, everything we do is done the way you would do this in your kitchen at home. Now we may use a big cabbage slicer where you would use a knife, but after that you would salt your cabbage then you would pack it into a vessel and then you would cover it up and let it ferment and that's exactly what we're doing in every respect in all the things that we do everything is done using the methodologies that uh, when I say traditional I don't mean what my grandmother was using I'm probably talking about my five great grandmother uh, who was working with uh, no vinegar uh, had to ferment you know virtually everything and um, uh, you know so traditional I when I say traditional methods I wouldn't want you to think I'm talking about where we take a ball jar well like my grandmother did when mm -hmm. you take a ball jar fill it full of cucumbers and pour boiling vinegar over it mm -hmm. that actually turns out to be a very modern process how long does it take the sauerkraut to ferment from when you chop it up well um Fermentation uh, is, is, especially bacterial fermentation, is a long process. And there are different kinds of sugars that are in the cabbage. The, uh, what we want to do with our product is to uh, get it to a certain pH, which is a safety factor. And when we've got it to a certain pH, then we start tasting it. There's kind of a magic point with sauerkraut, with pickles, where, you know, uh, uh, I could say objectively, but really subjectively, they come to a point where you just say, oh, that is good. And that's the point. Just slightly before we get to that point, that's where I want to pack that stuff. Does it keep fermenting once and it you continues pack it? And, to, and it continues to ferment. So... You get two things out of this. One, if you have tried our products, you know that uh, uh, we really focus on fresh. We, we make everything to order, and fresh is very important to us. What does fresh mean? It's the crispness. It's Crunches. the character. It's the, how, how, the, how the fruit looks. Crunchiness. Yeah, it's crunchy. Sort of all of those things. Now, happily... If you look at the population of sauerkraut, uh, the bacteria begin to grow, and sauerkraut's a very tricky fermentation because there are three very distinct phases of sauerkraut fermentation, each represented by different 
group of bacteria. Who knew there was this much stuff on pickles, right? I mean, (laughs) seriously. (laughs) So anyway, but it's a normal, it's it's sort of a bell curve of the bacteria begin to grow. They grow, they grow, they grow. Then there's a big population. They do a lot of fermentation. What's happening is that they're, they're taking sucrose and fructose um, from the cabbage or from the cucumbers and they're converting it to lactic acid and a tiny bit of CO2. And there, there's this bell curve that happens, and we want you to buy it where you're about two-thirds of the way up on that bell curve and mm-hmm. eat it when it's right at the very top. And so we uh, ship all of our stuff. We start by measuring the pH, and usually in about 10 days or so, 12 days, we've hit the pH target. So then we pack it on day 12 through 16, somewhere around there. And uh, by the time you get it, it takes about a week to move through the channel, meaning it goes over to the distributor. Then they put it on a truck, take it to the store, goes into the back room, store opens it up, puts it out on the shelf. You come along and buy it. That all takes a week to 10 days. And so like 25 days 25, now. 25, 30 days, somewhere around mm-hmm. there. And that's when you the cabbage... I think is at its peak because it's about half fermented, um, meaning that there are still sugars left in there. This, the the uh, integrity of the cell structure is great. Pectins are all still in the cellulose, which the degradation of pectin in cellulose can be a bad thing. What it basically comes down to is, is that pectin binds the cell wall together. And if you lose pectin, which is a sugar, mm-hmm. it just turns into goo. Right. <laughs> so see? the jar that I've had in my refrigerator for two years, I probably should get rid of. No. No? No. 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 It la- you should taste it if you like how it tastes. And if you don't like how it tastes, throw it out. But if you do like how it tastes, eat it. Is there a lactic acid thing you can stick in there and measure it? Well, yeah, actually there is. You can measure pH, and if you come over to my shop, I can titrate the lactic acid. Better be careful, he will. will. Well, and what happens to the color for the cabbage? Because cabbage is green, but when you get it as, as sauerkraut, it's almost white. Yes. So what you're looking at there, interestingly, is uh, first of all, um, the, the uh, uh, green color is going to give way to the actual color of the bacteria. And you see I, on the table here, we have a container of sauerkraut. And if I could just ask you to pass that over here, you'll notice that in the center of this sauerkraut, there's a kind of a pleasant yellow-ish mm-hmm. color. If you can buy your sauerkraut when it has that yellowish color mm-hmm. that's telling you that the uh, uh first of all the chlorophyll which is the green part disappears pretty quickly mm-hmm. because it's an active chemical that has to be recreated constantly mm-hmm. or it just disappears so the green's going to go and fade a bit um and, and then as the bacteria uh as the bacteria progressively eat the uh sugars and grow as a uh, they grow in, in numbers. Oh, you, this color, you, this that yellow color appears, and that it's it's a very pleasant uh, pleasant color, and that tells you that you're in the peak of the fermentation. As that begins to change to this lighter color here, this is where there's less bacterial activity, and then in in uh, here, even in the short period of time we've had this container open. 
these bacteria who normally want to metabolize sugar will begin to metabolize oxygen mm. and they will produce hydrogen peroxide so it bleaches off the top mm. you see the yeah. see how the tip top of that yeah. is kind of turned white that's because there's hydrogen peroxide there and it's bleaching whiten my teeth with it. yeah even whiten your teeth with it yeah. can you use purple <laughs> why don't they use purple cabbage for sauerkraut well we do and uh i do have a uh Actually, we make for uh, another manufacturer a organic uh, purple sauerkraut, which we don't sell. That's our commercial line um, there on that sell sheet. Uh, but we had a request from a local kind of organic manufacturer for some purple sauerkraut, which we made. Uh, it turns out that uh, the red red sauerkraut or red cabbage is more expensive. Is it sweeter, I think? uh, It is a little, it has more sugar Mm -hmm. in it, and uh, it really ferments nicely. Mm -hmm. And it also has, uh, seems to have, and this is area of science that I have not gone into, it seems to have much uh, more robust texture Mm -hmm. when you bite into it. Cell walls are harder. Yeah. So this is like, random but i love artichoke hearts and i get them in cans and they usually i love the ones in oil but i don't do that i get the ones in can that are just like brined or whatever they usually go in my liquid from my kosher pickles from my fresh pickles nice yeah that's my i use the byproduct of the juice yeah because i make i personally at home i make artichoke hearts yeah so I can buy little artichokes at big yeah. mm-hmm. and then I take them home. And I, I love that because the ones I get are just plain and you can add flavor to them. But I think out of all the things and the liquids and things that I have, this is the flavor that I want them to have. Well, so that's what I do. That sounds like a pretty good thing to do. I mean, a lot of people, you know, this is another interesting thing about all, all of a sudden now we're drinking pickle juice. Yes, I wrote yeah. that down. Pickle martinis. Yes. Pickle juice. Yep. Just um, shots. And people are pickle, just doing shots. Yeah, right. pickle shots. There are pickle potato chips now. <laughs> yes, yes, there are. I, <laughs> that would be that's good. Right. Yeah, they are kind of good. And I, I, while on one hand I think that's just wrong, <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, I eat them. <laughs> you know, uh, but I, I had a, I did have a, 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 one of our larger customers asked me to do some prototypes for them, and they wanted a Bloody Mary pickle. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to work and made one, and I ended up drinking all the juice. Uh. And it was pretty darn good, actually. Yeah, I um, bet. I think. Uh, and I think some of the uh, uh, there's some pickle vendors around who are using uh, brine to um, make you know, Bloody Mary mixes. Mm-hmm. I would caution also, by the way, there there are some sort of charlatans in the industry who are making you know pickle health drinks. Yeah, and if you look very closely know. at what you're talking about there, you got you go get yourself a bottle of you get a bottle of uh, 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 white distilled apple vinegar cider. okay forget white, the apple cider just, stuff distilled. i'm talking yeah industrial white okay. vinegar here <laughs> and s- some salt and then you go to a, one of these flavor outlets and you can even do this you can do this on amazon i was stunned to find you can order up a thing called clausen pickle and it's a little clear bottle of chemicals mm. 
happens to taste exactly like a Clausen pickle. Mm. Wow. So you take this vinegar and the salt, and you take the little bottle called Clausen pickle, mm. and you pour it in there, and then some yellow dye number five, <laughs> drop it in there. Yeah. And now you've got that's the problem. Quote, pickle juice. Yeah. And and I'm sorry as a as a maker of pickles. I object. Yeah, those were, those were I, I agree. Now, do you eat pickles every yeah. day? Do yes. You, yes. <laughs> you have a pickle every day, or I really can't think of a day that I don't eat a pickle. Yeah. Um, I. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> what I is have, your? Do you have a favorite of all your pickles? Well, it's you hard know, to pick favorites. It's like wine. It I is. mean, it's what are you eating? Or yeah, what, you exactly. Know, I mean, this is. I, I'm. I'm holding my my kosher. The holy grail. The king of, of yeah. pickles here. The half the the kosher. Like half right sour. now, I want a Reuben. Yeah. I want a Reuben sandwich right this second. Yeah, absolutely. I wish people could smell what it yeah. smells like in here right now. Yeah. Well, this is this is your Reuben sandwich. Yeah. Totally. Then this guy here. This is just a generic spear, but I, I want a hot dog. Um, this is well. If you want a Midwest hot dog, you know how in a Midwest hot dog they, they lay do? the big yeah. pickle on top of the thing. Uh -huh. This is okay. That's, that's what the, yeah. the spears are for. Mm -hmm. That sauerkraut over there is uh, a uh, Korean smoky, barbecue, smoky chipotle sauerkraut, and it's intended for braising and for doing other things with. Um, I have here dill garlic sauerkraut, and this sauerkraut, you know. Uh, um, if you want to take a hot dog and make call it a health oh, yeah. food, yeah. you take some of this stuff and you take some of our sauerkraut and you put it on your hot dog and now you got a health health yeah. food. Our um, our hot dog um certain times during the year off of the food truck has kimchi, spicy we make a Brussels sprout kimchi. Oh yeah. And so we have that and then a spicy aioli. And that's yeah. our mm. hot dog. I want one of those. I know. Mm. I know. We haven't made those in a while. Mm. So the the other thing I was thinking about is cold packing is like I mean we have our jams and things like that and it's different because they go through the line they get heat sealed or you know mm -hmm. all the air gets sucked out and then um, put into cases and you know they could sit there for eighteen months. Yours you need all your stuff refrigerated mm -hmm. all the time. Yes. So you have a huge electric bill for yes, one, yes, or solar, which, yes. you know. Um, but then the cold chain is like a whole nother beast in distribution. Yes, that's the dark underbelly of what I do for a living, um, in that I we have to maintain the cold chain. And uh, for folks who aren't familiar with that term of art, the cold chain, uh, a food that is defined as needing refrigeration even in our case where it doesn't need refrigeration we're refrigerating it as an alternative to chemical synthetic uh, preservatives and we're also trying to slow the metabolism of the bacteria down so that uh, when you longer. when you get it it has the maximum uh, probiotic content um, but the fact is that the the cold chain uh, has to be maintained, logged, monitored. We have these little uh, little gizmos that go into a case, and then they're removed from the case at the far end, and they read out what the temperature of the truck was during the period oh of time God. it was transferred. If you ever exceed 40 degrees, then the, the lot gets rejected, and uh you know that's pretty economically painful hmm. and while that has 
pathogenic meaning for things like meat, chicken, fish. Unfortunately, our food, well, fortunately, our foods have no pathogenic risk. But even with the garlic in them, uh, even even with the garlic because of the pH and okay. gar- the thing about garlic that is is the thing you don't want is uh, uh, botulism, right. and uh, because of the pH the pH and the combination of pH and temperature, there is no possibility of botulism mm-hmm. in these foods. So we're free to we're freer to use garlic than maybe some people would at a who had a high pH. If you have or a pH homemade, of six, or people doing homemade stuff. Yeah. So anyway, but we're caught up in this uh, larger mindset that has been created to protect uh, the pop the consumer population from uh, pathogenic, being healthy. <laughs> well, pathogenic risk from mm-hmm. meats and, uh, and pro- basically proteins right. um, and high pH foods. But in any event, uh, we use refrigeration to slow down bacterial metabolism so that I want you to have this pickle when it's half sour, meaning half fermented. And mm-hmm. if we heat it up, if I was to put this on an 80 degree counter uh, here, a barrel fermented pickle, it would become a whole sour within three days or so. Oh, it would wow. have fermented all the way through and... And, and then, you know, a lot of people like whole sour pickles. So these, I could potentially buy these and just leave them on my counter? Well, okay, so here's my pitch. to <laughs> so, you know, New Yorkers have more terms for uh, barrel-fermented pickles than Eskimos have for snow. Huh. It, I mean, it, you know, there's the new pickle, the the new half-sour half pickle, the half-sour pickle, you know, late half sour, early full sour, full sour. Oh my goodness! You know, on and on and on. And rather than myself getting involved with that, because a lot of uh, you know, when I stand in a grocery store and I'm doing a demo and I'm handing these pickles out, and they go, "Oh no, 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 that's a late early half sour," or you know, whatever. I don't want to get in that conversation. What I say to them is, "Look, I'm going to give you a half sour pickle, and you can make a whole sour out of a half sour, but you can't make a half sour." of a whole sour right. so knock yourself out right you make this pickle you can custom tune this pickle to wherever you want it but i'm that's giving it to pretty, you as a half interesting. sour so there you that's go that's very interesting so if i left it on the counter for three days it would turn into it will turn into a completely different well, i pickle. may do an experiment just so i can no, taste yeah. the two next to each other absolutely yeah. absolutely do it yeah I don't, it's it's amazing to me what what we've done to our food source. I mean, I, I think that my first driving us crazy. Well, I think my first time to Italy, I saw eggs that were just out, and I yeah. thought, I thought how yeah. weird that In was. Spain, the eggs they were, were just, just sitting, sitting out, out, right? All yeah. the time, cheese wasn't pasteurized. Butter Milk not sits big. out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, talk about you know tomatoes that are in the fridge versus out of the fridge and flavor. Yeah. Well, it you know it, it's it's a funny thing because we just had we've all just come out of this big blackout and uh, oh about, what did that do to you for um, didn't touch us because we were in Healdsburg who has a separate utility oh, district good. okay I happen to live in Alexander Valley which was affected so and, you had a blackout and my friends I have a couple of friends who are sort of germophobes and oh. you know of course <laughs> for them this was a massive everything needs to be thrown out of your refrigerator and all this <laughs> stuff and. It's not that I'm uh, relaxed about pathogens of any sort. It's just that I've studied this for a long time. You now know and, your business, you and know I know your my business, and yeah. I know there. Yes, there are a few things you might want to think about throwing out, but it's not like 
I mean, these germs and even molds and things are like mushrooms. Mm-hmm. If you know anything about mushrooms, you know there's only there's only uh, several mushrooms in this area. Two mushrooms actually that'll really kill you deader than a doornail, and the uh, Amanita phylloides and Amanita verosa. And y- there are a million mushrooms in this area, and and of those millions of different kinds of mushrooms, there are two of them that'll kill you. Everybody, however, when they, if they're unfamiliar with mushrooms, will look at that and go, oh, my God, you know, mushrooms are dangerous. And, you know, I'll right. only get mine from Safeway. Somehow that, <laughs> you know, that, that they got a blessing, whatever. Uh, the fact is that uh, there are, and there are, uh, there's a whole body of mushrooms that'll get you high. And there's a bunch of mushrooms that'll make you mildly nauseous and uh, uh, might raise your uh, blood pressure a little bit. But there are not many deadly mushrooms, and yet we all fear mushrooms mm-hmm. because of those two, which are kind of gruesome yeah. in the way they kill you. Um, are you becoming a mushroom expert now? I have been hunting mushrooms for 50 oh, years. Oh, wow. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar with mushrooms, of the, especially of this area here. But my point is that bacteria the same thing. You know, there's not many of the jillions of bacteria that are out there. There's really not many that'll do you harm. However, those that are, that will do you harm will do you some pretty grave harm, and you have to you do have to be mindful. But I do think we as consumers have gotten a little too trained up by the uh, pharma and health departments and health departments and other things as to what the real meaning of bacteria are. Generally speaking, you know, when you like you're eating blue cheese, you're eating molds and bacteria and all this stuff and loving it. You're drinking wine, and and what do we do with our red wine? We do malolactic fermentation, you know, and we wouldn't want to drink a red wine that hadn't had malolactic done or whatever. So these are all good and very positive things that bacteria do for us, and and it's a shame that there are a few bad actors in there, E. coli and Salmonella and mm-hmm. a few of these others. Because they are in such a tiny minority and so rare. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- when, when, when I talk about rare, think about the pile of food that 300 million Americans eat every day just in, one, in a pile. And they say, oh my God, but you know, 50 of them got sick. Well, 300 million of them ate hundreds of millions of pounds of food. And, and 50 people got sick. Statistically, that is... As Very close small. to zero right. as you yeah, get. And good. to spend your life worried about that. Mm-hmm. Well, On the other hand, you should be reasonably concerned when you see things changing into funny colors and what right. have you. So, I mean, it, you know, that's a really good point. I mean, obviously in the restaurant, we're thinking about food safety all the time. We are thinking about hand washing. We're thinking about rotating. And it's always interesting to me when we get a call Um, someone automatically jumps to the point, you know, I got food poisoning. It was from what I ate at your restaurant and we go, okay. So, you know, we wait, did we get any other calls? We check the food source that it was, you know, a thing of muscles, you could have one bad muscle, you know, it doesn't mean all of our food is bad. It just meant there was one muscle that had a lot of bacteria that didn't work with that person's system. Another person could have eaten that muscle and their probiotics might have been a whole lot healthier and they could have been fine. And it's, um, I think these are the things that have created over rules, 
over, um, you know, checking, like making things more severe, more hard. And, and you're right. It's the few bad apples that are out there that aren't as conscientious as most artists and producers are, um, that kind of make it a mess. Well, it's, it is, uh, you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, I live with, uh, which is the food, uh, safety and modernization act. Um, and, uh, this was the most recent federal rewrite of laws concerning food production facilities. And they are, boy, if you've read through 21 CFR 117, um, <laughs> I wouldn't even understand well, that. Well, it's, it's, you would, you would. It, it's things like uh, employees must wash their hands. And then they ask the question, how do you know they did that? I was going right. to ask that. There's yeah, always those signs. But right. You don't, how do you know they did knows. that? Well, yeah. the reason is because you have employee training and the, all the employees sign something. Right. Then you have to keep that as a document. And right. it it is a burden to the food industry i think right now uh how uh, regulated we are and the the numbers that guys throw out and you know fifty thousand people got sick last year from food poisoning yeah okay um did i'm not sure that phasma was the cure for that on the other hand when you go into phasma and you pick out any particular paragraph and you say uh well should we wash our utensils after using them I think I do in my house. I'm right. probably sure you do too, right. and we all do, and that makes sense. So would you draw a line through that? No. No. So, uh, you know, if something drops on the floor, should you mm-hmm. pick it up and put five it back? Second five second rule. Five second rule. Well, in my house. <laughs> depends on the floor. In my house, I give it a 10 second rule, and I, it goes back in there. You got lactic but, acid all over But I have to tell you that at the, at the factory, anything right. that hits the floor yeah, is goes, gone. That's exactly. it. And that kind of makes sense, especially right. if, when you're in a big production environment. you got forklifts right. driving past and other things. You don't want to eat things off the no. floor. I think that makes sense. So you don't want to draw that paragraph out. And then the How one about, about now chicken? Right now, there's been a bunch of articles in the last week. Should you wash your chicken before you cook it, or should you not wash your chicken before you cook it? And How the argument good being, does washing, putting something under running water, does that really get rid of no things no, that are but on? Not, and it, and no. they're saying that it actually creates worse bacteria because when you're rinsing mm. it, it, gets all over the sink and it mm. gets all over Spray, the towel spray. and it spreads all over. Well, and you're you're doing something else too, which, you know, you can make your own call on this. Uh, I think the the idea of not washing chicken in the house was born from two things: one, it, it's not that effective, and, and two, the the splash from that chicken, as you said, you know, puts uh, uh, potentially uh, harmful pathogens around the area that you were washing, and that you could cross contaminate other foods with that. The thing is that, um, for the most part, uh, uh, unless you're dealing with shrimp that have been chemically treated, where you might want to think about getting rid of the chemicals that they use to treat mm-hmm. the shrimp, um, that bacteria tend to, to come into this sort of static point. And for the most part, uh, the good bacteria dominate the bad bacteria, and you upset that when you wash your chicken. Now, you know, handling chicken and handling these other things, especially like when we're in our 
in our plant, and I got 50 people running around there, and they're all dressed up, and I have to wear, when I go out there, I wear my little hat and my <laughs> I know. gloves and, and your you know, my apron you have and to everything. Wear booties. All the booties, and I've got the yeah. sanitation thing for your feet when yeah. you walk in and all these other things. Um, you know, do you want to do that in your kitchen? I don't think you do. Yeah. But I do understand that the public has a trust in you and in Absolutely. us. And anytime you meet the public to deliver something that you would feel good about delivering to your kids or to your, you know, mother or father or whoever. Um, and I take great pride, actually, in the sanitation practices we have. Although I also acknowledge that if it was just about food safety, it is way, way, overboard. way overkill. <laughs> so you can count on the fact that most of the things that you buy these days, packaged foods, are, are safe. And like you, from time to time, I get somebody who calls me up and says, I ate your sauerkraut and I got food poisoning. Well, to begin with, the FDA, in their advice to industry on acidified and fermented foods, has one two-sentence paragraph on fermented vegetables. And it's, it says, the FDA has no documented case of pathogenic transmission through a fermented food in the history of its existence. Therefore, we recommend you generally follow the guidelines for acidified foods in terms of food safety and what have you. Every single time what we do uh, when we do a batch of sauerkraut or anything we make, we hold back some of it right. until its expiration date. So we always have something that we can take out to a lab right. and we have an, and, and then we have a procedure for when we receive a potentially threatening complaint, uh, threatening in the sense that E. coli right. or something of that sort. Um, we have a whole procedure for what we're internally mandated to do. We, and, and of course, one of those steps is to send this out for a, a screening, a pathogenic screening. Mm -hmm. And we have never, ever, ever in 15 that. years yeah. had That's awesome. a detectable pathogen in any product right. we've ever made in spite of the fact it takes that, up space doesn't it all those batches keeping oh uh, brother bit. and worse it takes like, up refrigerated yeah, space and not seriously. only that it's in a stainless steel locked cage uh, because we have to control the samples right. and make sure that there's no monkey business how long or, do you have to keep them until their expiration date which in the case of the sauerkraut's 160 days in the case of the pickles it's 90 days so i've got okay oh my goodness i've got 160 yeah. days worth of sauerkraut <laughs> sitting what in there. do you do with them all once you hit the expiration date to you we give them to the uh to shelters to the there's oh. a food pantry right around that's the corner wow. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's right a up, lot of food right. to get rid of that yeah. people can yeah. eat yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. and it's perfectly good. I mean, these are best buy dates. That's another thing in the industry right, right, right. now. We're, we're moving from expiration date to best buy, and those <laughs> he are, goes through the refrigerator. He's like, the expiration date. We've got to throw it away. I'm like, taste slavishly it. looking at numbers. <laughs> it it actually, uh, you know, the industry allows the vendor to determine what it is that triggers their expiration. What we did was we established that if there is a discernible shift in a characteristic expected by the consumer, then we say you're beyond the best buy date. And so for the sauerkraut, that discernible thing is that the you, you've gone over the peak of the bacteria, now you're down to two-thirds of it. 
that's the point at which we say, well, this is Eat no longer now. what yeah. I intended you to have. Right. Uh, and the pickles and everybody else is probably good for two or three years, but, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, so. So it's more a matter of taste than health and safety. Pectin. Yeah, and, and in some cases, like if you have oils, mm-hmm. uh, bad thing about oils is they tend to oxidize and you can you can taste that vinegar uh also oxidizes Mm -hmm. and you can taste that uh if you're you know really kind of focused on that you can taste it and if i was selling i don't know a volatile oil of some sort you know hazelnut oil or something i would want to make sure that there was a point at which i understood you know that's about the point where it's going to oxidize and become what we would call rancid Mm-hmm. And probably put an expiration date on somewhere around there. But um, well, as a kid, I remember we didn't eat the pickles when we would take the top off and there was rust. <laughs> right. Do you know what I'm right. talking about but on the now, on the but jars? But now the lids yes. are coated, so you yeah. don't you know really the lids are, have. By the yeah. way, here's a little little kind of ironic joke. You know, everybody's concerned about bpa and plastics yeah i was we were i was going to ask you yeah bisphenol a an endocrine disruptor and somebody whose brain was on vacation when they did this made a sippy cup for babies that was made with a plastic that contained rich amounts of bpa now bpa is not a good thing uh it's not been demonstrated to be you know hugely bad but it's just not a good thing and i wouldn't want my kids drinking out of sippy cups with bpa so we banned bpa and then i got a million letters because as you can see our products are in plastic containers they say, well we heard the plastic has bpa well no plastic doesn't have bpa you got to add it and polypropylene never had and never will have bpa and these things are all very very inert but you know where BPA is? The where last is holdout of BPA. <laughs> the lids of jars. The lids of jars and the linings yes, of cans. Yes, and the lining and the paper. Wax like the paper. Is that like, right? I uh, know. Grease, grease, things that you, I'm pretty sure, yeah. that like patty paper, that uh-huh. kind of mm. waxy, waxy yeah. that stuff, I think that's what that mm. is. So in the current rush to throw plastic under the train and go for glass, right. Um, right. Yeah. which I also have some thoughts on. Um, and that was my question for you. You, I mean, you are in these containers and mm-hmm. not glass. I mean, glass would be so much more expensive to ship, I think. So I did a study of this and being, you know, A, a nerd, B, an engineer, uh, I naturally, uh, when I thought about making pickles, I mean, my first thought was, well, we'll put them in a jar because uh, I didn't, I mean, I just thought you put them in a jar. And then, I don't know, I got into a discussion with somebody or other and they said, oh, wouldn't it be cool if it was sort of like a fresh deli look, you know? Like a barrel. <laughs> you know, so we looked at these and then uh, these plastic containers became kind of interesting. So I did an evaluation of glass versus plastic and I did a life a life analysis of glass versus a life analysis of plastic, taking into consideration the uh the amount of energy used to create it, the amount of disruption that that creative process caused. In other words, where did your raw materials come from? It came from oil wells or it came from sources of silicates, um, you know, that were mined specifically to make glass. And then what happened to the heavy metals that are 
that are byproducts of the mm-hmm. glass, what happens to the byproducts of the petroleum industry and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And then what is the life cost with respect to uh, the storage of these things? We all know that uh, concrete is a horrific source of carbon dioxide. And what do we have on the floors of our warehouses? Concrete. And Mm -hmm. so glass does not nest. So when you you look at a flat of, let's say, 500 containers of glass, you're looking at an entire pallet. Mm-hmm. that has to be stored somewhere when you look at a container 500 plastic containers it's a box that's you know 24 inches by maybe 18 inches or something of that sort and so they it stores much better it's uh then we talk about transportation and you know anytime you accelerate or decelerate something you have to spend energy to do it plastic as a fraction of the weight of uh, glass mm-hmm. Then there's the issue of BPA and the lids of glass. Um, and and today, where we have the Pacific gyre full of plastic, and I have to tell you, as a diver, a lifelong diver, I have been watching our oceans die for years. And to me, it's... Do you dive for abalone? Beyond appalling. Yeah, I used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that we've got demoic acid out there and all the abalone have died, no. Yeah. <laughs> but I've, uh, I have done a lot of diving around the world. And, uh, and I'm very sensitive to the idea of uh, plastic uh, in the environment and how it builds up and so on and so forth. But after studying this problem for quite a long time... Um, I hate to use the this modern political technique of doing the pivot, but really you have to sort of do the pivot. It's not about plastic or glass. It's about reusable versus non-reusable. And if you notice one thing about our containers, they were specifically chosen to be mm-hmm. as reusable containers. Mm-hmm. My kitchen is littered with these things. All mm-hmm. my friends have these things all over the place, but they're really wonderful. Because you can use them indefinitely yeah. right. to store things in, to mm-hmm. do stuff with. And it turns out, and I'm going to say something that's against the sort of modern political correctness. Well, we love controversy. So the controversy is we have not done a very good job of recycling. We, not, we recycle 9% of our plastic, and with China offline now, maybe that'll fall to something like 4%. Mm-hmm. We recycle 25% of our glass. Doing so requires a huge amount of energy consumption. And, um, and, and, and if you look at it mathematically, uh, it turns out that while I strongly support recycling, it, it can't be the answer because every time we look at 25%, well, that means 75% was wasted. And in plastic, that means you know uh, 95% of plastic goes into the landfills or whatever. The only solution to that is to have a reuse mindset, not a recycle mindset. Recycle is what you do when you can't reuse the thing anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But reusability in terms of energy conservation, in terms of every piece of the equation, Mm -hmm. reusability is really the issue. I had somebody write me a very nasty letter the other day when I sent them, we have a paper on this subject. And I sent them the paper, and they sent me a very nasty note about, you know, <laughs> usability. That, that's crazy. Whoever thought of that, you know. <laughs> and uh, all I can say is I'm open to a discussion. But well, you're the only doing th- the work. You're doing the work of 
being educated and understanding all the ramifications. I mean, right now we're having a debate, though the debate's over, because we do these chocolate cookies and I have looked at everything. Like, I don't know what to put it in. They're not airtight if they're in this. They, you can't see them if they're in that. This plastic bag doesn't hold up. And I ended up, we're going with plastic. And the only thing that I can think of is that I'm gonna find something else in our company that I can change to green and double it even. Yeah. You know, because we're not gonna be able to walk away from plastic. There's yeah. just no way. I mean, what's gonna be the replacement for plastic film? Yeah. I mean, look at that's a huge. just look in a grocery store. I was standing I know, in the you front. Can't, it's impossible. I was standing in front of my favorite grocery store, Big John's, the other day, and you know, they you, you walk in the front door and you're confronted immediately with this glorious selection of cheeses, every one of them wrapped in, right. you know, uh, single use plastic. And uh, I was talking to the owner there, and we were just sort of lamenting, you know, so what do we do? What I mean, where do we go from here? And the answer, I think, is. In general, we try, you know we should try and remediate where we can, like you're right, saying, exactly. And you know, little things like you know, plant more trees than right. than you plant. If you ever plan to use wood right. in your life, like live in a right. house or build something, right. fireplace. So plant and, more trees yeah. than you ever used. Right. You know, don't kill anything older than you are. Right. Um, you know, these are things that that help remediate uh, the the inevitable consequence of our being here. And uh, what we really need is to evolve to some other form of plastic that degrades better right, right. than current plastic does because right. uh current plastic you know in a thousand years this molecule well it'll Maybe. it'll this uh it'll collapse in about a thousand years but if you look at the buildup in that period of time it's so great that it should be concerning to everybody microplastics floating around in the environment mm -hmm. But as should as should the CO two that's used to create glass, and um, you know everything everything has a consequence. Everything. But if you consider what a corn based um, a corn based uh, plastic might look like in terms of its degradability, that might be part of the problem. And then we go back and say, well, geez, you uh, know, now we have the mono mono right. crop <laughs> of corn. Go back to GMO and. But the point oh, yeah, the point yeah. is that we always look for an an answer when in fact uh, when you're looking at systems there is never an answer there are a system of things that you do that hopefully are remedial to the extent that 10 years from now we're better off than we were in the beginning right. today that's not true today we're right. putting a lot of stuff in in our I think we need to be focusing on the kids and getting kids really interested in trying to solve some of those problems and figuring out, you know, the curriculums in schools need to change. Kids? Well, uh, yeah, kids yeah, are just I around mean, here to pay our bills, right, clean up our world, right, make, clean but up we're the mess we made. Gone. Exactly. They got, they're going to have to figure it out. <laughs> what were you going to say? I was going to say, I know that there are markets in certain places that have bulk foods and you can bring your own containers in. And refill them, then you could use those for that. Mm -hmm. And there are there are restaurants that you bring in your bag. own plastic containers, and they'll yeah. give you your takeaway meals in those. So yeah. nothing would thrill me more than it's to have that. Probably yeah. going towards that, but how do you do that in big supermarket well, chains? How? No. And then no. anyone that's worked in restaurants, we actually all use these. They're called delis. 
and we yeah. and they have tops and we use them extensively like so drink if, out of them right you never want to drink <laughs> oh out of the one that they were storing right. garlic in the, the day before I always have to smell it first yeah. right yeah. or goat cheese water, um, my coffee. but we we go through a ton of these things yeah. and it's it, people would just have to make that adjustment for doing that at home instead of using your Tupperware your Corningware whatever but some of these them are, are great so thin for, that they, they're made so they're right. so thin that you right. But then all those single-use plastic bags, like when you go into a market to buy produce, so you take those bags and you put right. it, your produce in there, and then you put that in a bag, and then you're home with three bags around one piece. I, so I've bought the Did you get the, the mesh th- Those are great. My mother-in-law gave I me those. Them, and and so do you remember to put them in your they're car in my, every single in time? They're in my bags, in my car, and they don't come out. Yeah, you have to amazed. leave them in your car know, with right? your yeah. reusable bags. I can't, even, I can't even remember to put my bags in my car. But I'll go through the market in the produce, and if there's an option of something local, organic, or prepackaged, I'll buy the local organic just to not have that extra plastic bag. Yeah. So you're doing your part. Yeah. Good job, Al. I'm trying. Yeah. yeah. It's like the best thing is yeah. nesting. I never thought it's of nesting. that. Nesting. <laughs> you know, when you yeah. stack glasses, you no, take it's them true. out, and it vacuum yes. seals, and you pull it, and you break yeah, the glass. Exactly. Yeah. It, no, it's... It, uh, Plastic, and unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, plastic has tremendous advantages. And uh, I guess it's not as simple as just not being able to recycle, or it, no. it's not that simple of an answer. Well, if you can come up, if you can it, it, reuse, I really argue reuse, and I know people think that that may not be the politically correct thing to say at this moment in time, but I can't argue that. I am always available to argue the mathematics of it. And it's a simple function that is, you know, if, if the answer is that you use less than 100% and recycled, then that means some percent is being thrown away. And therefore, as the function goes from zero to infinity, the amount of stuff that you use goes to infinity because you're going you're gonna to keep throwing stuff away and you're going to keep demanding that you make more and more and more stuff. And there just comes a point where, you know, you can't make stuff without it having consequences. And so anyway, we use reusable and we welcome, we were happy to see these things around in people's kitchens and my kitchen's full of them and all my friends' kitchens are full of them. And we use these things every day for all kinds of things like you were describing. And not just for food. I mean, these would end up in my daughter's bathtub. Yeah, uh, they would, you know, they would end up uh, going to the beach with us and yeah. building sandcastles. Sand I mean, there's, a, you just have to, have that mindset of what what else can we do with this thing and we're all said and done and the thing's broken on the top and what have you drill a hole in the bottom put some soil in it and plant a tree yeah awesome yeah (laughs) and there you go so oh so much fun yeah so much fun the pickles are absolutely delicious which i already knew because i already buy them Mm. but are you guys gonna (laughs) go look for them now trader joe's in boston refreshingly un just nuked with sweetness yeah. right i mean it actually doesn't overwhelm you with right like whatever right sugars put in a, yeah yeah we have those yeah. at my house we have the spears and then we also have the sauerkraut i can tell you that those things did make it through the rolling blackout for us i we put everything in a cooler and i tossed out the milk and the cream cheese but we did not get rid of the pickles or the uh, sauerkraut yeah, yeah. good job <laughs> yeah kind of well, the side if, of the bell 
Yeah. <laughs> now, if, if people want to find these, I know yeah. for me, we purchase them at Oliver's Market, which Oliver's. we absolutely love. Um, but yeah. as, if people who are outside of our sort of zone here, can they order them and have them shipped to them? Are you able well, to do that? No, we don't ship because of, you know, this is the classic problem. This and... is a very low value, high weight, yeah. refrigerated item. So we're trying to get them into stores near you. Now we're in the West. You're not too far away from this product anywhere you happen to be, whether it's Washington or California, Nevada, um, Arizona. Uh, and uh, we're, we've just made some good headway in the Rocky Mountain states out in the Midwest. Um, you know, we're available through some very nice grocers out there. Schnooks and Lunds and Byerly's um, and Giant Martin on the East Coast. And then we're available nationally, or at least our kosher pickle is available nationally through Trader Joe's. We're in Whole Foods. three of the Whole Foods regions. We're in Safeway, Raley's, uh, Pavilions, uh, Mother's, uh, Gelson's, so awesome. Bristol Farms. Right. So if you don't find much. them in your market, if you're listening Nugget to this, you markets. don't find them, then then ask, and th that's just what you ask do. For you, them, right? You, you, you say, yeah. Well, we yeah. love it when customers go in and ask for our product because you know vendors can go in there and wave their arms around and tell you it's the greatest pickle you ever had, and right. that has like zero weight with the buyers. Right. But when a customer comes in and says, "Hey, I tried this thing. It's great," you know. Right. Well, it's different also because, you know, most people, when they're looking for pickles, they're in the mustard and ketchup aisle. And these pickles are in the cold section. They're sometimes the they're near the eggs. Sometimes they're near sliced cheese. Yep. Um, Sonoma Market, they're near... Right across from the butcher. Right across from the butcher Butcher's with the sausages and the bacon. Pick yeah. them up with your hamburger and your yeah. uh, hot dogs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. have to kind of retrain, you know, where to find the best pickles. Well, yeah. Uh, go to your go to the refrigerated pickles. <laughs> right, go shop. to the refrigerated pickles. Uh, we're the guys that don't use chemicals. Yeah. So. So this was awesome. And then um, website. Uh, www.sonomabrinery.com. And uh, are you on social? You see my smiling mug there, Instagram. <laughs> got our Facebook page. And okay. I'm really the wrong guy to do this because no this you have the stuff but we'll get the marketing part into your marketing person's <laughs> okay. hands i i really i, I have uh, we we were i was meeting with uh, some of our marketing and sales guys the other day and i i officially have bowed out as the guy responsible for the social media thing because you know to be perfectly honest with you i spent 30 years in telecommunications building some of the building blocks that today we use as as the internet and and back then we were envisioning this sort of utopian world where truth would reign because uh. <laughs> it would be impossible to obfuscate truth behind oh. lies uh we thought That's that distance learning was mm -hmm. going to be one everybody could get a college education because you didn't you know you didn't have to go to a college you could get the courses at home we had all these views of this and uh, some of that, some small portion of that is true. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of it isn't. And the way social marketing gets used, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm, I'm going to just tell you this. I'm too old to understand. So I'll let somebody else who's younger pick that ball up and run with it. I, <laughs> so, I hear you. Anyway. Now, is there any top secret project you're working on that's coming out that you got some new line you want to tell us about? Top secret? 
if it was top secret, I couldn't. We're always looking at uh, new things. Uh, we've had uh, uh, some inquiries around the industry. We get uh, manufacturers from time to time would like a pickled product that they will incorporate into something that they're making or one of the big chains will come to us and say, you know, we'd like to see a particular kind of a spear or pickle or jardinera or something. And then I do uh, projects for chefs also oh, who are interested in, uh, you know, interesting vegetable uh, products or other things that uh, you know normally the progression is that a chef will think of something and it turns out that uh, it's really not that hard to make and they they can do it but to do it over and over and over again mm-hmm. and do it repeatedly and all that other stuff they'll sometimes turn to us and say look we're we'd like to get this from a space point of view out of our kitchen yeah. and the labor and various other things. And since you guys are already doing this kind of thing, maybe you could help us out. So we do projects like that. And, uh, we're always looking around the industry to see, you know, what, uh, what looks fun. Okay. I'm just curious. As a kid, I remember one of my favorite things to eat coming out of a jar was, uh, we called them dilly beans. They were I basically just beans. green beans that were, my mom makes um, good that were, beans. yeah. And, and I missed, those because the person who made them isn't around anymore so um just planting a seed well i made those uh for a restaurant up in healsburg and they had a bloody mary bar Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um i made them their their green bean pickled green beans and they're they're delicious especially uh well how many did they have to buy from you to do that not much really they were yeah, they're I mean, your they're, friends. They're my friends, and yeah. you know, I mean, <laughs> I, no, I, you know, one of the things you find when you're in the food business is that the things that got you into the food business, the desire to be creative, to you mm-hmm. know, develop flavors and profiles and textures and things. If you're in the manufacturing business, well, then you go and you make millions of them over and over right. and over again, and then the problem is not, you know, do I select this cucumber or that cucumber? It's what kind of a fuse do I need to replace over there in the slicing mm. machine that just blew mm. so that the 30 people who are standing around waiting for this thing right. to get going again will get get moving because I've got, you know, all this payroll sitting there and you're out there changing fuses or, right. you know, whatever totally. it takes totally. and you're not really creating food. So when somebody comes to me and they say, hey, I have an interesting idea. We had some guys come in with uh, snap peas. Mm. And I worked for six months trying to do snap peas. And uh, it's going to take a better man than me. I, I, I did not hit pay dirt on that one. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, I uh, had a guy come in and he wanted uh, a special kind of sauerkraut for a thing that they were doing. And we hit the, th- the thing. And, and also a, another one came in for a pickle of a particular type. And we were able to do that. Mm-hmm. And they go off into these manufacturers, which is you know, really great because we just ship pallets and pallets and pallets out. Right. They send us a check. So it's all good. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. Oh, Dave, thank you so much. This was so fun. I learned, I learned a lot. Hopefully I can retain some of it. Well, thank you for having me in. We really appreciate the opportunity to tell you our story. Yeah, no, (laughs) I appreciate it. And Ellen and John, thank you. Thanks for joining joining the show today. 
Brian. They got real quiet. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, if you want to um, check out some of our past episodes, you can go to thebikegoeson.com. You can also visit us at the Radio Misfits Podcast Network um, and see some of the other shows on there, like the Winemakers. Um, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you so much, our Sandra, our first bacteria farmer in the books. There <laughs> Thanks, we go. everyone. Thank you.